All right, shalom. It's great to be back at Calvary. I was at the men's retreat. I want to tell you it was rocking like more than it will be here in Philly next weekend, huh? Praise the Lord. And it's always good to be back here. For those of you who don't know much about Jews for Jesus, it might sound a bit strange to hear that name. Kind of sounds like a contradiction, like vegetarians for meat or something like that, right? But you all know better because you know that Jesus is Jewish, right? And the disciples, Peter, John, James, they were all Jews. All the writers of the New Testament, with the possible exception of Luke, were Jewish, and Luke was a doctor, so who knows, right? <laughs> but the wonderful thing is that in Christ, that middle wall of partition has been broken down, and Jew and Gentile can now be one together in the Messiah, amen? And you know, because of that, you share with me in a rich heritage, the heritage of the people of Israel, and all that God did to reveal himself through the fathers, through the prophets, and, and through the festivals of Israel. This is your heritage, too, in the Lord. And, and a, a while ago, I was here and presented a message about Christ and the Passover. How many of you were here and remember that? Okay, well, that is a wonderful picture, if you will, of the redemption in the Lamb, Jesus the Messiah. Our whole communion comes out of that. And so we were really blessed. And Pastor Bob, who loves the Jewish roots of the faith, asked me to come back and, and go from the first festival to the last festival. We're going to talk today about Christ and the Feast of Tabernacles. You know, there are seven festivals recounted in the book of Leviticus. And yeah, that's where we're going today. And you might be thinking, uh-oh, you know, a lot of you maybe tried to read through the Bible. You started with Genesis. That was great. Cool stories. Exodus, lots more. But then you get bogged down in Leviticus, right? Well, Leviticus is alive with symbolism that really found are foundational to our faith. And God gave Israel these festivals to reveal something of his character, and of his plan of salvation for the whole world. For many of my Jewish people, the festivals are like this. They tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. <laughs> kind of like a big Jewish Thanksgiving celebration. But when we understand the biblical foundations and the roots and the symbols, we see a picture unfolding of God in his character and of God in his plan of redemption. And, and so we're going to be going from where we were last time I was here, the first festival, to the last festival. And there's some real significance about last things, right? And we're going to get there. But this Feast of Tabernacles, or as it's called in Hebrew, Sukkot, is really uh, one of three special festivals Mentioned in Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, out of the seven, three times a year, God commanded all the men of Israel especially, and then they'd take their families with them and go up to Jerusalem. So this was a schlep, so you had to move. It took you out of your comfort zone, but it called the nation of Israel together to worship him. And each one of these festivals, you go up to Jerusalem. You could be at the top of Mount Everest. And if you're going to Jerusalem, from the biblical perspective, you're going up. Because that's the place God chose to put his name. And that is where history is headed. And so that you don't be thinking about this the whole service. I don't often get into politics, but I've been asked. So what do you think about the U.S. finally recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> 
And I say that not because it's, uh, you know, political, but because it's biblical. And we see that all the way back in the book of Leviticus. So we're going to check this out and read some of the scripture in Leviticus 23. And uh, we're going to read just a few verses that describe Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. And then we'll jump into what it all means. Verse 33. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. And then skip down to verse 39. Also on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days." You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God." So you're going to see a lot of booths around the outside of the city of Jerusalem. Have you ever been, anybody been to Jerusalem before? Yeah, it's a kind of a rocky, hilly countryside. I remember the first time I went to Jerusalem, I was with a music group called the Liberated Wailing Wall. We sing Jewish gospel music. It's kind of a cross between Israeli folk and Fiddler on the Roof. And it's great stuff. And we were there to minister primarily out on the streets. And I remember one time we were on the um, Ben Yehuda Street, which is a kind of a, a pedestrian walkway, a lot of crowds of people. And we were wearing T-shirts that said, Yehudim Laman Yeshua, Jews for Jesus in Hebrew. So they knew who we were, but most Israelis are secular. And so they were really getting into the music. And we're singing, and there's a crowd forming, and some of them are clapping their hands, and there's a little group off to the side doing some Israeli folk dancing. And I'm thinking, wow, this is great. Here we are preaching the gospel right on the streets of Jerusalem. And then I noticed out of the corner of my eye, there are five yeshiva bochers. That's the young ultra-Orthodox seminary students. You know, you've seen the black hats and the side curls. They were walking towards us with a look of grim determination on their faces. I knew we were in trouble. And sure enough, these guys get right up in front of us and they start screaming and, and yelling. And then one of the guys reaches out and grabs the hand of the violinist. He's going to wrench the bow out of her hand. And I'm thinking now, oh, great, we're going to get martyred on the streets of Jerusalem. And right at that point, up walked this giant of a guy. I mean, he was taller than Pastor Bob. And he, you know, he was completely bald, had a big handlebar mustache, kind of looked like Jesse Ventura, you know. <laughs> and he gets up in these guys' faces and he says to them, you touch them and I'll touch you. <laughs> and these guys backed off, you know, we were able to continue ministry and I thought, praise the Lord. The Bible says the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him to deliver them from harm. I just never knew he looked like Jesse Ventura. <laughs> but Jerusalem is the epicenter. It is the ground zero for the conflict of all the ages. And it is the place that becomes the imagery of worship for the Lord. And so you have to picture yourself in a booth 
outside of the city of Jerusalem where it's all happening. And uh, the, the, the commands of Scripture concerning this festival are two in the passage we just read. The first one is the command to remember. And uh, we, I don't know who made this. Some guys put this thing together with some instructions that we sent. And this is pretty typical of what you might see maybe in the backyard of uh, one of the Jewish neighborhoods here in the Philly area. Um, you know, it's kind of a, a, a three-sided with uh, the, the, you can see through the slats and the branches that are on there to see the stars because we were to remember that we dwelt in booths when we were wandering in the wilderness. In fact, you know, from salvation, redemption, which is a theme of Passover, we're to remember. God was concerned that once Israel got through the wilderness in that 40 years of wandering, that once we entered the promised land, that we would forget. And doesn't that happen all the time? It's so easy to forget. It's so easy to become attached to the things of this world and forget our dependency upon God. We had the pillar of cloud by day. We had the pillar of fire by night. Water from the rock. Man in the wilderness. We had dependency all the time. But when you get into your houses and you get into your nice farms and, you know, you think that, hey, this is my stuff. Hey, this is where I live. You know, this is my territory. And God says, you know what? Remember, this world is not your home. You're just a passing through. You're on a journey still. There's a wilderness that you need to be recognizing all around you because this is not your final destination. So every year, go out and build one of these things, live in it, eat in it, invite your neighbors into it, and realize the temporal nature of the world you live in. And I think that's good for all of us to do from time to time. I celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, but I also like to go and backpack in the, in the Sierra Mountains. And every time I do, it's a spiritual renewal. I go there with my Kindle, and I read the Word, I read books, and I meditate, and that's how I get recharged. So whatever you can do, this is a good thing. Remember, this world is not your home. You're passing through. That's one of the main themes of Sukkot, the tabernacle the feast that we're celebrating because we have a future that we should be looking forward to, that we should be longing for, not living for all the junk you can pile up under one or two mortgages, right? This is a liberating thing, so we're to remember. And then the second command that we read about is that we're to rejoice, rejoice. Isn't it interesting that we have to be reminded by God to rejoice, you know, Shem, you were talking about rejoicing as, as the theme that you were thinking about for today. I think the Lord directed you because that's a big part of Sukkot. If you go to Jerusalem and it's like no other festival because everybody goes out. You can't drive in Jerusalem on the last day of the festival because everybody, no, there, the, no sidewalks. The streets are just filled with people making their way down to the Temple Mount. It's an amazing sight to see. And it always happens in the seventh month, which is Tishri on the Jewish calendar. And that's sometime around September, October. And it's a wonderful experience to see all of these people coming to remember and then to rejoice. Take for yourself the beautiful fruit trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, willows of the brook. Now, as 
when you think about this, how do you build a booth? What does it look like? And how do you do that verse? Well, the rabbis have actually figured it out. And we have, along with the Bible, another uh, series of literature that is called the Talmud. And one of the tractites of the Talmud is called Sukkah. And it's all about this. And so we can read about how the Jewish leadership developed the way to observe this. And so the next slide is going to show you what, how we, what we use to rejoice. That's called a lulav and an etrog in the hands of that rabbi. The lulav is the willow, the palm, and the myrtle branches that are nice and fresh. When I was at the men's retreat, I went out, you know, in Sandy Cove to look and see if I could find any of those things. Couldn't find them. So it's really only in season around that time of year in the land of Israel. They make these and you buy them in the store. The other thing, it kind of looks like a squash, but it's really a citron, one of the beautiful fruits. And uh, it's really in the lemon family, hard to get. And when you get one that's blessed by the rabbi that looks like that, you can be paying up to a thousand bucks. It is a big deal to have a beautiful fruit like that. And, you know, the only time I've really seen citron used in America is when people bake fruitcakes at Christmas. Have you seen that? Have you made one of those things? But that's where you see that used. It's, it, it, it's, it's just what they do, okay? Now, what we do with this to rejoice is kind of a little funny, but we take, just like he's got it in his hand, and we go inside the booth, and we, we sing some of the psalms, like Psalm 118. And then we wave it. We shake it. We shake it up. We shake it down to the right, to the left. We do the hokey pokey, and we turn, you know, and you feel a little bit silly doing it, but you have to kind of get into it, and it's the way of rejoicing. The psalms, the scriptures, the praise, and then the, 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 the fruit of the land, because you see All three of these Aliyah festivals are agricultural festivals. Something's happening in the land. So even if you were exiled from the land, which has been the experience of my people for thousands of years, you, by celebrating this festival, will know what's being harvested in the land that God swore to give to your forefathers. And also, because of that, God gave these festivals in order that Israel, instead of celebrating the way the pagans do when the harvest comes in, celebrate and recognize that there's no God of the, of the farm and God of the trees. And there's one God, and he's the one who provides all of our needs. And so we're remembering his deliverance, we're remembering his provision, and we're rejoicing together. And all throughout the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, this festival becomes the imagery of God's worshipers and the plan of redemption for the future. And uh, in fact, this is the only festival the scriptures tell us is enjoined upon all the nations. They will all come up to Jerusalem someday in Zechariah 14 you read and worship the Lord celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's good that you're finding out about it now, right? And in fact, when we get into the New Testament, you start to see certain ways in which Jesus and the disciples are incorporating this into their own life. And and we're going to talk about that now. But, you know, in Mark chapter 9... There's really an interesting story that you probably never thought of before in this way. 
Jesus had just been at Caesarea Philippi, which is up in the north, and it's at the foot of Mount Hermon. Okay? And on verse 2 of Mark chapter 9, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain. Well, that's the highest mountain in Israel. So we know where the Mount of Transfiguration was. It was Mount Hermon. It's, you know, sometimes you see the snow-capped top of it, and you can see Syria and Jordan and all around from there. Israelis can go skiing sometimes. There's ski resorts up there. So it's a big climb up to the top of that mountain. And Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. So they're seeing in advance the beauty of God's holiness, the promise of the kingdom, this image of white, bright, light, beautiful like nothing else on earth. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, the law and the prophets. And they were talking with Jesus. And here comes the part that everybody likes to make fun of Peter over. Then Peter answered and he said, Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. <laughs> well, of course they were greatly afraid, and people will pick on Peter, and he, he deserves it probably a lot of the time. Open mouth, insert foot. Peter had to say something because he didn't know what to say. Yeah, but that doesn't mean he didn't know what he was thinking. If you understand what Zechariah 14 says, and you see that the Feast of Tabernacles is a picture of what's happening in the future, and you see the glory of the Lord, Peter's saying, okay, I get it. Let's build sukkahs. Let's build tabernacles. Let's, it's the same word in the Greek that's in the Septuagint in Leviticus 23. Shina, let's build the booths. Let's get the party started. <laughs> That's what he's saying. And he had the right idea. He was just off by a couple thousand years. And so you see this imagery all the way through. And in, in John chapter 7, if you look at that right now, you'll see that Jesus, like he celebrated Hanukkah, like he celebrated Passover, he celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. But in a very powerful way, he chose to take symbols that had developed. And this is really, uh, this might be a little bit cookies on the top shelf, but it's real, and I want you to get it. Because there are two parts of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles that were not mentioned in the Older Testament, but that the Jewish leadership developed, and we read about in Sukkah, and that Jesus himself is willing to take to teach about himself. The first one is called the water drawing ceremony and we read the verse 37 and 38 on the last day that great day of the feast Jesus stood and cried out saying if anyone thirsts let him come to me and drink and he who believes in me as the scripture has said out of his heart will flow mayim chayim rivers of living water now the last day the great day of the feast is also known as Hoshana Rabbah and it is 
It means the big salvation, the great salvation. And on that day at the temple, now that the worship was in the temple before it was in the wilderness, now it's in the temple, there's all these things that have been developed to remember, to remember and to rejoice like water. What was that in the wilderness? It was everything. And God brought water out of the rock to show his love. And so the priests, in remembering that, would take these giant cisterns and march with music and orchestra all the way down, first to the Kidron Valley and to the brook of Kidron, but then later on, after Hezekiah brought the water into the city, to the pool of Siloam, which we know where it is. And if you've never walked through Hezekiah's tunnel, when you go to Jerusalem, it is... It is one of the greatest experiences of touring in the land. You have to be ready to get wet. But it's a fun uh, and amazing uh, architectural engineering feat of the ancient world. And, and you walk through there and you come to this great pool. Well, the priests didn't have to walk through the tunnel. They just went down to the pool. And they'd fill up these giant cisterns with water. And then they would march back up to the temple and march around the altar seven times on the seventh day, Hoshana Rabbah, and they'd pour the water out. And as the water was flowing down from the altar, down the steps, into the court of the women, into the court of the Gentiles, the, the orchestra struck up the very popular Isaiah chapter 12. With joy we draw water from the wells of salvation. Yeshua, Jesus. And Jesus says this very thing. Hey, if you're thirsty, if you want a real drink, come to me. And guess what? It won't be just going in. It'll be coming out. Out of your innermost being, out of your heart, will flow this same Mayim Chaim that the priests are singing about. I'm the fulfillment of all of God's provision. The wilderness wanderings. That's why Moses wasn't supposed to strike the rock the second time. Because Jesus was only going to get crucified once. And Moses got in big trouble for breaking the type, you see. And so all of this was part of God's plan to demonstrate what Jesus said. Come to me. And of course, the scriptures go on to say that he was talking about the Holy Spirit that had yet to come. But Jesus is the giver of that gift. And he would fulfill everything that was promised. And then there's another part of the ceremony that happens later on in the evening of the great day of the feast. And it's called the illumination ceremony where the priests would erect these giant candelabras, you know, that you actually needed ladders to climb up to get to the bowls, big giant bowls. They'd fill it up with olive oil that was prepared especially. And then they'd use the worn out robes from the priests as wicks. They'd dip them in and light it up. And it was like nighttime, but it was daytime in the temple. You, you could see, and, and, and the rabbis say, anyone who has not seen the illumination ceremony in the temple doesn't know true joy. So this is joyous. This is celebration. And what does Jesus say at that same point? He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Isn't it interesting that Jesus chose these symbols, which Jewish leadership had developed, but was not part of the Older Testament record to talk about himself. And I'll just say this. People often accuse Christians of messing up by celebrating Christmas. You know, because it's a pagan thing. And, well, first of all, 
It's the celebration of the birth of the greatest Jew that ever lived, right? So why not celebrate his birthday, even if it's not mentioned in the Bible, okay? Do we know it was December 25th? No, but that's as good a day as any. And so Jesus gives us a pattern that God has used all along. He gave us these festivals so that we wouldn't go off and worship pagan idols at the times when the pagans were worshiping. And that's what the early church did with Christmas. They wanted to use the winter solstice, which was kind of some of these new believers in Jesus who had been pagans were kind of tempted to go back and celebrate. And the church said, no, let's just do what Jesus did. Let's celebrate Christmas. Let's celebrate the birth of the Savior. I hope I'm not stepping on toes, but I want you to see the point. God is able to take human things and breathe into them his life and his spirit and we need to be able to recognize that when he does it. And Tabernacles is a wonderful demonstration of that. Jesus says, it's all about me. If you keep it all about me, it's going to be biblical. <laughs> it's going to be real. And that's a blessing that I get from this feast as well. But it's all pointing to the future. And it's all still to be fulfilled in the future. And Peter, as I said, got it right, but he was off by a couple thousand years. Because really, the Feast of Tabernacles is about a future harvest. And we're not talking about wheat, and we're not talking about grapes, but we're talking about people. First of all, we're talking about the people of Israel. There needs to be a harvest. That's why I do what I do. I'm a minority in the minority. But I know what God has promised. You see, before this harvest, there's some things that are going to happen and already are beginning to happen. There's going to arise an enemy of the Jewish people that makes Yasser Arafat look like a good friend. And he will, to all of the world, as he deceives them, look like a great leader, a wise statesman, but the Bible tells us from heaven's perspective, he's like a beast coming up out of the sea. And as he deceives those nations, he gets their armies together and invades what the prophets call the beautiful land. You gotta go and see it. It's an amazing place. It's full of problems and sin and people who are broken just like everywhere else. But it's the place where Jesus walked and talked. The beautiful land is invaded by the beast in the center, in the place called the plain of Megiddo. R is the hill overlooking the plain of Megiddo, Armageddon. You're with me. You know, if you go there today, you can see it best from Mount Carmel, where Elijah faced down the prophets of Baal. You can also see it from the tell of Megiddo, which is where Solomon built a protective part of that Jezreel Valley and the Via Maris, the way of the sea. Napoleon Bonaparte marched his armies through there on the way to and from Egypt. He said, this is the greatest natural battlefield in the world. And he's right, because it is the gathering place for the mother of all wars. And as the beast begins separating the north from the south to fight with his armies down, he's fighting down, down to the, to the city of Jerusalem where that ground zero of the conflict of all the ages is. Now the city is surrounded. A lethal dagger is poised and pointed at the heart of the nation. And God who promised 
they would exist before him forever must come through now. Or the end is certainly at hand. And Israel, still primarily in unbelief, nevertheless having heard from the 144,000 witnesses, the two prophets who died in Jerusalem and were raised back to life, amazing things that transformed people, but not the majority yet. They've heard, and now it seems the end has come. And at the very most desperate of hours, Israel cries out, to God for a deliverer. And that is when he comes. The Bible says you hear it and then you see it. The Lord himself shall descend with a shout. What does the shout of the creator of the universe sound like? In my imagination, it begins like a rumble that gets louder and louder and louder until all warfare ceases all activity on the planet comes to a screeching halt and all attention is grabbed toward the skies where we see the clouds roll back as a scroll. The brightness of a thousand noonday suns fills our vision and there's the one we've been waiting for. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And as he descends and as his foot touches the Mount of Olives, that mountain is split from east to west and then is fulfilled the promise of the prophet Zechariah who said, and I will pour out upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn as one mourns for an only son and weep bitterly as in the weeping of a firstborn and in that day a great fountain will be opened in Jerusalem for cleansing and for purification and thus all Israel will be saved. Hallelujah. Maranatha. Come Lord Jesus. Come quickly. That's a harvest. I want to tell you, the nation saved in a day. We're looking forward to that, and we are planting seeds now for that harvest. But there's an even greater harvest to come, also spoken about in the book of Revelation. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the sukkah, the shinah, of God is with men. It's no more human tabernacles. It's God himself who has come to tabernacle with them and dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Every tribe and tongue and nation gathered around the throne. I saw uh, the new Jerusalem coming down as a bride adorned for her groom and in Revelation 22 there's this beautiful picture of the throne of God and the Mayim Chaim flowing from the throne and fruit trees on either side that have 12 different fruits growing all the time, all the year. The imagery of tabernacles is the picture of eternity. That's where we're all headed. <laughs> That's what God wants us to be excited about now. That's the meaning. That's the direction. Can you get excited about that, brothers and sisters? Hallelujah. What are you going to do? The vision of the future that God gave us from the very beginning all the way to the end of the text. And with that, I want to bless you. All right? Uh, in Numbers chapter 6, God gave a blessing to the sons of Aaron to give to the people of Israel. They were the priests. And he said, bless my people with this blessing and they will be blessed. Would you stand for this? It's called the Aaronic Benediction. First in Hebrew, 
and then in English. Would you bow your heads, please? Yevarechecha Adonai v'yishmarecha Yoher Adonai panavolecha v'yikuneika Yisau Adonai panavolecha V'yoseim lecha Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace. Bashem Yeshua Mishichenu Sar HaShalom. In the name of Jesus, our Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Amen. Thank you.